listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho, and we're doing something a little different today. We're doing a a two-part episode because there's a lot in me that I want to talk about, (laughs) and uh, we're going to split into two episodes. And we're going to do something a little different where we start the show with Glisten. That's right. We're going to do our Glistens for this episode first mm-hmm. um, so that we can find a good stopping point in the middle <laughs> of our conversation. Let's just, yeah. And then you'll just have to stay tuned for the second half next uh, week. Yeah. We're telling you all our process <laughs> out loud. <laughs> Um, okay. They love it. They love hearing about our process. Okay. All right. So we'll start with Glisten. I'll go first. I discovered this very cool app called Libby, um, where you Libby? connect. Yeah, Libby, where you connect your library card to it, and you have access to audiobooks. Like you could borrow audiobooks. Yeah. Um, and I think that app is connected to all the public libraries just like across the nation. So whatever library card you have, it's going to connect it to that system of libraries. Um, so yeah, I just started borrowing some library or audiobooks and listening to it, um, which then got me into like, wait a minute, reading versus listening <laughs> research. Mm-hmm. Like how do you, which attain, which retain information more. And uh there's, I saw, I read that it doesn't like take, um, it's not much of a difference, but with listening, you have to not be doing anything else. Like if you're doing multitasking, then you're really not listening. Yeah. I have a really hard time just sitting and listening to an audiobook. I want to be doing something and then I start doing something and then I realize that like 20 minutes have gone by and I haven't been following what's happening with the story. Yeah. So it takes a really different kind of, focus I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and with books like at least you can turn back you're like wait right so at your own pace you could kind of visually see and and really absorb that information whereas audiobooks you can't go back and so you can't really adjust yeah. or like retain that information same thing with ebooks like you can't really go back easily um can it was weird digital ink but yeah I just thought that was interesting and I wasn't that weird internet hole of <laughs> information retention let's go do you have any favorite audiobooks so far um no i just started this one book um see i can't even i don't remember because i'm you not know it's a really good audiobook what is uh the year of the flood it's by margaret atwood and i listened to it on a long drive a couple years ago and what i like about it is it has different actors doing different characters so oh. it's like easier to keep track of who's who because I think there are three different storylines mm-hmm. um and it's kind of post-apocalyptic and so some um, really good so some audiobooks have like actors mm-hmm. doing some mm-hmm. the voices that's cool well this I think this was the first one I'd ever heard like mm-hmm. that but it, maybe it's becoming more common does it even have music it, yeah, it had music too. Yeah. What? Yeah, it was like a multimedia cool. okay, year of the flood experience. And add that. Um. Yeah, the year of the flood. Okay. Well, my glisten um, is that um, 
for reasons that will become apparent shortly, I have started frequenting a brand new library and um, there's a public art installation in the lobby that is celebrating pollinators. It's an altar to pollinators um, put on by um, some artists associated, well, it's a project associated with this organization called the Aspen Institute. Mm. And um, on this pollinators altar, you can bring different gifts and kind of lay them around the altar and then the artist will incorporate them into the piece. So anything oh. that like makes you think of pollinators and how special they are, like, I don't know, a piece of a beehive or something mm-hmm. or a flower. Um, so they, yeah, so they really want it to be like members of the public will bring things to contribute. And this altar is in the public library in Boulder, Colorado, where I now live. Wow. I know. I drove like, I think, like 2,500 miles. That's crazy. Um, and all the way from Maine to Colorado. Already in Pennsylvania, people were like, wow, Maine, that's a long drive. And I was like, you have no idea. I'm going so far. I've yet to see another Maine license plate in Colorado. So I feel very unique. Although I did see yesterday a car driving with an Antarctica license plate. What? Um, which I had never That's seen not before. real. It was on the front only. You know, they had like the Florida uh-huh. license plate on the back. But I was like, oh, I guess I'm no longer the most unique person. <laughs> so from Maine to Colorado, how was the drive? You know, I went through, I feel like I went through so many different landscapes, heard so many different accents. Um, I ate a lot of snacks. And so now I'm trying to like rehydrate my body with lots of (laughs) salads. Um, Yeah. I mean, I saw, you know, the coastal forests and then I saw the mountains of Pennsylvania and upstate New York. And then I saw the plains of the Midwest, lots of trains and flat land. I stopped in Iowa City for a few days. Um, And then from Nebraska to Boulder, it was just like a steady upward climb. Wow. Which I I didn't quite notice until, you know, I got to – Denver area and then Boulder and I was like oh wow I'm a mile above sea level um so one thing I'm learning is altitude uh you have to adjust when you move to Colorado you have to adjust Mm. to the altitude so um for like the first two weeks it can be a little taxing to do basic things like climb a flight of stairs um and then your body starts producing way more red blood cells oh, uh-huh. um, to store oxygen better. And then you adapt. And then like when you go back down to sea level, you're just super fit. So I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that and feeling like a superhero. Um, I remember my drive from Iowa to California 
mm. after he graduated. I remember my darkest thoughts was through Nebraska. Yeah, Nebraska. I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this It was rough. It was, it was a rough trip. Because once you get to Omaha and you're like, well, there's a lot going on. And then after Omaha, it's literally just nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the <laughs> land was very, very empty. And yeah. There were, um, yeah. That was a long time. I remember that being the one of the longest part of the drive. Um, and I think you were just like, I'm going to keep going. I'm not even going to stop. <laughs> I think I ended up stopping in Colorado. because Yeah, because yeah, I was I like, sir, you have to stop. Yeah, you're right. I mean, For it was butter's insane. sake. <laughs> oh, my God. Traveling with a cat. Butters were so young back then, and I, I just don't know. I was like, man. When we tried it, when I took her from uh, California to Michigan – for the holiday break, mm-hmm. that was hell. So well, that was, was hell. and I was like, man, it was so long. And I was like, man, I don't think she could do this like another drive like this in her yeah little adult life of hers. Um, wow, road trips. Well, what do you love about Colorado so far? Okay, well, Everything. I love being in the city again. There's so much mm-hmm. food. There's so many people, um, and. The amazing thing about Boulder is there's just so much green space. So like right near my, I mean, I live in town, in the city, in the middle of the city, but just a short walk from my apartment is like this creek that goes through town and there's a bike trail and a walking trail that goes along the creek and people are like riding in inner tubes down the creek and there's like people, there's a fishing pond for children. So it really feels very, um, verdant and and like lots of nature is everywhere um I'm also oh and I love seeing the mountains um but the air quality is super bad right now and so it's um like you can't even really see the mountains that clearly today because Mm. it's just so hazy and smoggy so that's something I do not love. <laughs> um, coming from the really nice air of Maine, it's an adjustment. And I think it's a combination yeah. of the fires out west and also just like pollution. Yeah. So, wow. Does it snow there? Well, it's not. Um, yeah, it will snow a lot in the winter. Yeah. Mm. I think, especially if you go up in the mountains. I'm also. Yeah. Um, learning about rattlesnakes because I'm really afraid of them. And so I've decided that like the way to conquer my fear is to just learn as much as I can about them. And yeah. um, One thing I learned is that there's no rattlesnakes below 10,000 feet. So a lot of people who have dogs will just only hike with their dogs above Mm. 10,000 feet, which is kind of crazy to me because like, I'm at 5,000 feet right now, and the idea of, like, going double this high, mm-hmm. it's like, wow. But, <laughs> but you'll get so definitely, fit. Yeah, definitely up there. I think there's, like, wow. way more snow in the winter. Hmm. And that's my report. Wow. Have you watched YouTube videos of rattlesnakes? <laughs> um, no, but I've read a lot of, like, brochures on that I found online about you know how to the thing is about rattlesnakes they really do not want to have any kind of conflict with people or dogs mm-hmm. um but where people get into trouble is like you're not looking and you accidentally like 
I don't know, you're hiking and you reach to grab on a branch or something and there's a rattlesnake or like oh, you step over a rock and there's a rattlesnake on the other side of the rock. And so it's startled and then yeah. bites you. I think so. I think I would need to watch YouTube videos of like a person getting attacked by a rattlesnake and hear what you do. You grab the rattlesnake, <laughs> you pull it off of you. You know, it's like, that's my impression of that. I don't think what you have you? to pull it off of you because I'm pretty sure they bite you and then they like try to put Stay distance. Attached. Yeah. Um, between you, but um, yeah, 80% of people who get bitten by rattlesnakes are young men, and oh. mostly they get bitten on their hands, so oh my gosh. I think there's like probably a lot of harassing of rattlesnakes that goes on. Oh, um, interesting. And obviously I will not be doing that. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like all the advice is like, don't poke them with sticks. You know, yeah. I'm like, okay, no problem. <laughs> I just don't understand why people would even want to. Well, I think what happens is people come across them on the trail and they're like, oh, I want to keep walking on this trail and there's a snake in my path. So I'm going to get it to move by poking at it with a stick and like shouting and stopping. And then the snake is like, wow, you're threatening me. I'm going to bite you. Mm. So... Wow. Yeah, but people very rarely die from rattlesnake bites anymore because uh-huh. um, as long as you get to emergency care, they're mm-hmm. pretty good at treating it. Mm-hmm. It's just extremely painful. I know. I know. But then I was telling somebody at this store the other day, I was like, I'm really afraid of rattlesnakes. And he like laughed at me and he was like, you're not going to come across a rattlesnake. (laughs) And I was like, are you sure? Like, what if there's one in my backyard? And then he was like laughing. So. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm looking forward to is your Instagram starting to have Colorado content. I know. Well, once it gets less smoggy, you know, nobody wants to see a picture of like smoke. No, expose the truth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For you, Sarah, I will. Yes. Let us see. Um, so this week I finished up um, my, like, teaching artist slash or guest, whatever, um, and mentoring for the Ashland New Play Festival's New Voices. Yeah. And super fun. Um, I – it did remind me, though – like, man, I was kind of experiencing similar anxieties I've had when I, like, I was about to teach, when I went to go into teaching in, in Iowa. Yeah. And I was like, man, I am not a teacher. You like, were such a good teacher that your no, students loved you. No, 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 no. They're liars. But, <laughs> <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, gosh. Like, it was, I mean, it was one of the most, it's, like, really rewarding, really fulfilling, and really fun. But simultaneously, like, all my anxieties just came up again. I was like, this is why I don't like school. This is why I don't like teaching. This is why that part where um, I'm well, like. But what could would you have to be anxious about? You're the I, expert. It, You're I, teaching them. I think it's just, like, my in- insecurities, like, mm. of, the, of, like, what do they think of me? You know, that that is such a small, like, basic yeah. thing. But it's, like, as I'm talking and I'm like oh, I don't know what they think of me right now. They probably think I'm crazy. <laughs> I'm sure they loved you. Um, but it was really fun. And I loved, like, you know, reading plays and talking about plays and um, talking about life. 
So what (laughs) was some of the advice you gave them? Um, So one of – I did like a two-hour – well, under two hours, but like kind of a a workshop. But it was more of like I facilitated a conversation about – like taking inventory of like what you got, like your writing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then like tracking your submissions. Because mm-hmm. um, I feel like later in life, you you know, it's one thing when you just have one play and you're like kind of submitting it there every year, but maybe you'll find a year where you're like, I'm sending out three plays or two plays and you don't want to like repeat yourself. Yeah. The same the way to track. Um, so I just kind of like show them – what I do, it was it was so like I I, I expose my Google Drive. Like here's what I wow. do. And just to, I mean, no other like no other players would do this. I feel like you know like see this is why you're Google such Drive. a good teacher. Yeah, because you want to show them the truth. <laughs> show them the truth. Here, look how messy. <laughs> being it is, vulnerable. But, um, you're showing them my Google Drive and stuff, and I think it. I can tell they were overwhelmed by it or not like I would be if I saw my drive like I was brand new like mm-hmm. maybe five seven years ago but it's like I had to remind them that this isn't just something that happened overnight that it's something right. I've been working for like maybe I think it's like almost 10 years now <laughs> so it's wow. not like it's like you start developing the thing that makes sense to you um, yeah. as a writer but I was just showing them like what I do just to like because they always felt like um, seeing other examples, like from mm-hmm. resumes, cover letters, like seeing other examples kind of inspires me to rethink what I do, how I do things. It's so helpful. And it just yeah. felt so opaque to me when I was young. I just mm-hmm. felt like I didn't have any idea how to get started um, or how to track my submissions or how to, you know, be in it for the long game. Yeah, I remember showing my high school students when I was teaching high school a couple of years ago um, on my submittable page, like all my rejections. Mm. And the, and I was just like, this is, you know, you just need to know this is what it is. Like, you're going to get so many rejections. Yeah. And yeah. then there's that one acceptance after 20 rejections. That's mm-hmm. the one that everybody hears about. And like, they're going to, you know when you see somebody getting accepted to something, you're not aware of all the other things they've been rejected from. So you just have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, I tweeted, because I, I think rejections seem to be a occurring theme, like handling what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even during, on our podcast, I feel like it's right. something that comes up a lot. Uh, I tweeted this out on my Twitter this morning. I wrote... I think I don't feel bad about my writing being rejected from opportunities because I've been rejected by the following. My biological dad, the United States Congress, <laughs> and my cat on the daily. <laughs> like, really puts into perspective. Like, I was like, because I'm like. Amazing. When did Congress <laughs> reject you, Sarah? <laughs> they, uh, when they're not listening to my rights. <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So, which just feels like almost every day, whatever so news true. highlights comes up. I thought you meant you had like it. applied to be a member of Congress. Oh, a member of Congress. <laughs> which, I mean, I'm waiting for the day that that happens, so. I mean, it seems like so many unqualified people. Exactly. Congress, so I'm like, at least I have some qualification. Like, at least I had a job. Right. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> oh my god so funny um but yeah i i was just like thinking like it's one thing we're like rejected by some like without someone without a face like you don't know like mm-hmm. it's okay versus like it could be like really personal when you know the person maybe i don't know directly or personal person in your life mm-hmm. it's like it's like stings a bit more but but i also remember i was talking that you know when we submit to these things it's like it really is like a numbers game too it, yeah it really is yeah they, i mean all these places just have to reject so many amazing applications because they mm-hmm. just don't have enough spaces yeah yeah oh yeah Rejections. Did you hear about that? I, I wish I could remember her name at the moment. There was this writer, maybe a poet or a fiction writer. Wow, this is really bad that I can't remember. But anyway, she won this big cash prize. Mm-hmm. Um, this was maybe last year. And she split the prize with the four other finalists because she was like, we were all, you know, there are five of us finalists. All of their work is amazing. I don't like that writers are pitted against one another for one award. Mm. And so she just decided to share it. And it was so beautiful. Yeah, I'm going to find her name and maybe we can tweet it out later or something. But um, it was just like, I really loved that spirit because it does feel unsustainable that there are so many artists who are competing for such limited opportunities Mm -hmm. and there's got to be a way to change that model so that we don't have this mentality of scarcity or Mm -hmm. competition that I mean I do think it's important for people to be recognized but I don't know if it's healthy for us to be constantly competing for such limited resources against our fellow artists mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's it's like really sadistic <laughs> yeah because these are supposed to be our peers and our collaborators and instead what ends up happening is we are competing against one another it's just not healthy yeah i i i'm like now wondering if um a lot of writers who struggle with mental health, like if mm. this is, I don't want to say that if it's the cause or if it like stems from this, but like, or adds to it, you know, like mm-hmm. this, like, well, I'm not good enough. Right, <laughs> like, right. Like, um, oh, I really, that's a good story about that poet. Would you do that? Would you do it? Same thing? I like to think I would. Um I'm like, there's, there's never enough money. Right. Well, it was a huge, it was a huge cash prize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if it's a huge cash prize, like, I think I would do it. But but just to show people that that's possible, I think is really mm -hmm. amazing of her. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, yeah. yeah. So speaking of, um, I don't know, like, healthy practices in the field of theater (laughs) is that a good segue that is a very good segue um I want to talk about unpaid theater internships or just internships in general yes um snap 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 uh 
so this reminded me okay so i want to tell a little story and we'll jump into it so i remember when i was in college and i was seeing my career counselor slash um my uh major you know counselor mm-hmm. about my degree and stuff like i remember him really just like promoting internships like do internships like it is very important you add to your resume um and it's you'll acquire skills that you'll need to go into real world and get full-time job whatever right and he meant internships while you're in college while i'm in college exactly Mm -hmm. and i was like okay and i went to uc santa barbara so it wasn't a quarter system and so in one quarter i found myself Basically, I had like two part-time jobs. I'm taking full free like full load of classes and juggling about two depending on the hour, like two or three internships. Like I would go to like different internships and on the weekends or like in between my classes mm-hmm. and thinking like this is insane. <laughs> like I'm driving all over town. I'm not getting paid to do this. They're expecting me so much from me from this internship. And and like those internships, I don't even remember putting into my resume because I was mm. like, because there were internships and I thought, well, I had part-time jobs that paid. Doesn't that value more than right? <laughs> like, you know? Um, and so during the pandemic, I just felt like it's really reopened this conversation about internships and like paying what's right, what's fair. Mm-hmm. Um because what's being exposed is that it's people who can come from like privileged backgrounds, like they could afford to do these internships, right? Right. And so they're quote unquote have the foot, you know, um, their foot in the door for other opportunities. Whereas, you know, people of color don't have that um, uh, socioeconomic background to support them to do those internships because they're like yeah. I have to you know work and support my my finance financial um needs in another ways um but yeah what any just like your general well especially because I think one of the main values of doing an internship at a theater or you know wherever is to meet people mm-hmm. right and then so you're making all these connections and then I think the idea is that will lead to your first job. And so if all of these companies are hiring out of unpaid internships, then their applicant pool that they're looking at is going to be just people of privilege. So it compounds upon itself, kind of, it, it, um, has ramifications throughout the whole industry for who's getting hired and then who's going to be in positions of power. And then another thing I was thinking about is, did you know when Obama was president, the administration really cracked down on unpaid internships among um, for-profit companies? Mm-hmm. They like made it illegal to to have unpaid interns at, I think, I think nonprofits were exempt, but... Um, any companies that were for profit could no, could no longer have unpaid internships, and then I think maybe the Trump administration rolled that back. Mm. Um, but 
I think it was really interesting. It was an interesting moment when that happened because I didn't, I wasn't even really aware that there were unpaid internships at like major companies, but that was mm-hmm. really a thing. Like companies that made plenty of money, you know, and paid their CEOs huge amounts of huge salaries also had unpaid internships. And I remember thinking, um, this is something that feels totally normal and accepted in the arts to the point where the administration isn't even thinking about regulating unpaid internships, you know, among nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Um, But it feels really absurd and predatory in the corporate world. And now I'm kind of rethinking that, like, maybe it should be considered unfair and predatory everywhere because... Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, if, like, even if you're a nonprofit, you're still paying your staff and you still have an operating budget. And if part of your operating budget is relying on people to do work who you're not paying, that's a problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was this article in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. They did like a little survey and they said one startling observation they made was that students who never had an internship received the same number of job offers as unpaid interns. Mm. So something to put into perspective that like this notion that that internships is a necessity or something to is it's just that's really interesting and i assume that's across industries Mm -hmm. i would be really curious about if that's also true just in the theater world like you know people who are lit managers or people who you know go on to become artistic directors or designers did they like what percentage of them had an unpaid internship in their mm. at the beginning of their career? Oh, so juicy. Okay, we're gonna see <laughs> juicy. <laughs> juicy. Okay, so this is a great place to stop. We're gonna continue this conversation in our part two. So tune in next week. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.